0: Turn to Matthew 14. I'd imagine you've heard the phrase, you can read the writing on the wall. And as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, it is really clear that there is a deep-seated resentment toward Jesus Christ. As we've processed, especially in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, there is a growing animosity that the Jewish religious establishment has toward Christ, so much so as they say, we're going to destroy this man He's in league with the devil, they say. That's how come he can do these miraculous works. We refuse to believe that he's the Messiah, and we'd like to kill him. We want to destroy him. And so that was the Jewish religious establishment. As soon as they start pressing that item and saying, this is what we believe about Jesus, Jesus says, well, I'm going to start speaking in parables. And so you find that in Matthew chapter 13. But once you get to Matthew chapter 14, you find that not only the Jewish religious leaders are have Jesus Christ And his ministry in their crosshairs. Now you find out. So does the ruler in the land in which Jesus is ministering. Specifically Herod Antipas. He's now. Jesus is now on his radar. And it's going to be just a matter of time it seems before Jesus is going to be taken out. And that leads us to a a question that we wrestle with today. And certainly they were facing back then. And that is, how will Jesus actually continue his ministry and his work when he will no longer be here? How is he going to do it? I mean, all of us have wrestled with that. How is Jesus actually accomplishing his work today when he is physically not present? Is he? How does he go about it? What is he going to do? This this text we're at in Matthew chapter 14, it is so critical that every single one of us not only understand what Jesus is teaching, but that we actually apply it and do it. And if we don't, we will most surely miss out on how Christ intends to accomplish his work and his ministry in our generation. Now, they say that truth is stranger than fiction. And what I'm about to read to you as we start here in Matthew chapter 14 is going to blow you away. I I need to kind of almost offer a disclaimer You thought soap operas are bad? What takes place in Matthew chapter 14 in these opening verses here uh, is going to make that look like some sort of pale, weak story. You want to see wickedness on display? The Bible has no problem showing you how deep depravity goes. You'll certainly find that as we begin here in Matthew chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch. Let me give you a little background here, because as you start to see the background, all of a sudden this is going to open up and you're going to see what is taking place here. Herod the Tetrarch was one of Herod the Great's many sons. Now, Herod the Great had about ten wives. He had all sorts of children. Sometimes he actually named through different women this child the same name. For instance, he had two Philips, the son. He must have just really liked that name. Uh, What happened is he had three sons in which he actually gave over Different parts of his, his empire. And he ruled kind of all of Israel, all that Palestine area. Herod the Great, you remember we met him in Matthew chapter 2. He was that pleasant king that, for instance, killed all of the ruling class, the Sanhedrin. These were kind of like the ju- judges of Israel. One time they disagreed with Herod. He said, Well, I'll show you what I think about that. He had them all executed. You remember in Matthew chapter 2, this is Herod the Great. He was the one that. He had heard that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Remember those wise men show up and said, hey, what are you guys doing not worshiping the king? Like, ooh, wait, I thought I was the king. Well, where is this Messiah to be born? And remember, the Jewish scribe said, well, that's pretty easy. Micah 5-2 prophesies he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Really? So he sends those wise men off. You go you go find him, find out exactly where he's at, set things up, I'll come and worship him. And his idea of worship was to go and kill that newborn child, so he sends his soldiers in there and he slaughtered all the babies two years old and under to make sure that he got the Messiah, this Christ, this promised king of the Old Testament, who these wise men came to worship. Now, God actually rescues the, the baby and giving Joseph a dream and saying, you better get out of here and now and go to Egypt to fulfill prophecy and to spare his life. And so they do. This is Herod the Great. Now, when Herod the Great dies, his kingdom is divided into three. He's got Archelaus. You got Philip. The second, he actually has kind of the northern part, and then you have this Herod Antipas. He's got the area around the Sea of Galilee, and he's also got the area kind of on the on the east side of the Dead Sea. He's got this area called um, Galilee and Perea, and so he's got this area here. And Herod Antipas is a very interesting guy. Okay, now he actually, uh, this is how things worked. If you uh, were trying to keep peace in the empire. The emperor might arrange your marriage, okay? So they had no problems with prearranged marriages. And so Augustus actually sets up a marriage for Herod Antipas. And he wants him to marry a woman, daughter of King Aretas. He wants him to marry this guy's daughter. And so he does. He has a marriage with her, marries her for 15 years. This guy, Aretas, you can see where the land here, his kingdom, he's the Nabataean king, he actually is, sets up his kingdom and his base of operations. His capital is Petra. You're familiar with that? And so he's got his base of operations. What, the, what he's trying to do, the emperor's trying to do, is keep peace with the Arabs, okay? He hasn't quite conquered all that part there, so you have these marriages that you arrange. He gets this free set-up arrangement there where you'll marry this guy's daughter. Everything's going to be fine in the empire, and so he actually stays married to her for 15 years. Well, then one time he goes on a trip to Rome. And at Rome, he stays with his brother, Philip, not the Philip who is ruling the northern part, but another Philip that was the son of King Herod. And when he's staying at his house, he finds out that he is fascinated with his brother's wife. Okay, and he's this woman is named Herodias, and he's fascinated, becomes infatuated with her. And he starts an adulterous relationship with her. We're not exactly sure who starts what. But while he's staying at the house, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records these events that this is what took place. And so Herodias says we should get married. What we need to do is we need to divorce our our spouses, and we're going to come together. And now this Herodias, she sees the potential for power. She's married to Philip, but Philip is is actually pretty much like a common citizen. He doesn't have anything he's ruling, where, on the other hand, uh, Herod, Antipas, while he's got things going for him. So she, she goes, I'm gonna marry him. I'll actually then have, kind of be able to function like a little queen. I'll have power. I'll have subjects. And so they go through with this. And so what happens is Herod, Anipus, he divorces his wife, sends her back to King Arius, okay, go back to Petra, and he sends her off and thinking, I've moved on to bigger and better things. I'll take over my brother's wife. Adultery. But it's worse than just adultery. It's also incest. You see, Herodias is also his step-niece. Philip married his step-niece, and and so Philip was her uncle. He marries her. When she divorces Philip and marries Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas is also her step-uncle. And so you have not only adultery, you've got incest taking place. And so that's what happens here. Herod, the Tetrarch, that word Tetrarch, it literally means to rule a fourth, but it became a term they used to just kind of be a, a kind of an underling ruler under the Roman Empire. And so he marries Herodias. And that's kind of the background here. Herod, the Tetrarch, this is the guy he hears about Jesus. Now, he spends most of his time hanging out in Tiberias. You see that right there by the Sea of Galilee. However, he also... You see Macarius with the big red star. That is going to become very important in what's going to come ahead. That was kind of a citadel. It was like a fortress that Herod the Great had built, and it had these hot springs, and he liked to hang out there. It was actually very beautiful, and underneath the fortress, and you can still examine this in the archaeological evidence to the day today. They have all these chains in this damp. No sunlight dungeon where they kept prisoners. And those chains and where they hook people up can still be observed today. That is where he spent a lot of his vacation time. And he'd go down there to Machaerus. This is all going to become very important as we work our way through Matthew 14. So this, so this, Herod, he starts hearing news about Jesus. And verse two, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are. Are at work in him You see, Antipus had to have, an underst- have some sort of answer as to who is this man. Now we're going to have a flashback, and that's really what verses three through 12 are. There is this flashback that is going to take place. We're going to see what took place and why Herod would actually think that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, just like all of Herod's family, they kind of had a syncretic system of beliefs. They took a little bit of Judaism. They had some pagan mysticism. They were believers in the Roman gods. And they kind of weaved that all into a kind of a nice little mixture of whatever you want. Not so far away from American spirituality. You know, just whatever you want. You like that? Well, sure, believe that. You want to believe that? Do that too. And so that's what they did. So he kind of weaved that in. And he believed that Jesus was doing miraculous powers, these healings and And even raising someone from the dead because he must be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That's his conclusion. People were saying that. They're trying to figure out who this man is, this Jesus. And so they came to this conclusion. Now, there's another reason why Herod would think that uh, Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And that is because Herod had an extremely guilty conscience. And so we're going to have a flashback so we see the details. Verse 3. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. You see that? What took place there, like you'll see in verse four, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. When Herod Antipas marries his brother's wife, John the Baptist says, no, you are violating God's standard, his law. He sets it up. Further, You've committed adultery, and furthermore, you're committing incest. This person, this is, this is your niece. What are you thinking? This is incest. This is wrong. Well, how do you think Herod, who is power hungry, is going to respond to that? Like, oh, that's your opinion. No, I don't like that. He wants to kill him. However, he's afraid of him. Because John the Baptist started a revolution. He was calling Jews, even Gentiles, even some Roman soldiers, to repentance and saying that the Christ, the Messiah, is coming, and you better be ready. You better repent and turn from your sin and get ready because Christ is coming. And he's seen as a revolutionary, and he's got the power and the sway of the people. They're not exactly sure what to do, this guy. Furthermore, he runs around in, like, the sackcloth and eats bugs, okay? And they're like, oh, we don't know exactly. We don't have a category for this guy. And so... Herod's afraid of this man. He can't, if he kills him, he might start a revolt. That's the last thing he needs. So he decides to incarcerate him, and he places him in prison at Machaerus. Okay? And so that's what's taking place here. Now, he's, notice even how the Spirit of God refers to Herodias. He doesn't refer to the wife of Herod, the wife of his brother Philip. And this infuriated Herodias. She was livid. She wanted this man dead because he would publicly actually declare that they were sinning and this was wrong. And so instead of people liking her, they hated her and despised her. And she thought, well, I got a real good reason why that's happening. His name is John the Baptist, and I'd like him gone. So this is what's taking place in verse five. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. And So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have this. John the Baptist, and he's, he's been incarcerated. You hate him, but if you kill him, you might start a revolt. And so Herodias, she probably doesn't care a whole lot about politics. She just wants the man dead, okay? And she's waiting for an opportunity. And then that opportunity happens. Verse 6. You thought that some of the stuff on TV in our movie theaters is bad. Verse 6 notch, takes it up another notch. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, just a word about birthdays. Jewish people didn't celebrate birthdays. Okay? It was a completely Hellenistic, it was a very pagan idea to celebrate birthdays. And so the Jewish people had nothing to do it. On the other hand, pagan Gentile birthday celebrations were common And if you were a ruler or a person of power or you had resources, they were completely out of control. They were highly immoral. Roman nobles would hold stag parties, okay, so all the males would be in one area. And they would drink themselves into oblivion. And then after they were totally drunk, then they'd have these females and they'd come and do all these erotic dances. And then it it went from bad to worse. That is what birthday celebrations were like for Roman nobles, okay? And so there was erotic dancing, sexual indulgence. In fact, it's interesting, Latin for Herod's birthday, Herodias, Herodias Deus actually is this word or phrase that they would use for these great, wild, out-of-control, sexually indulgent parties. And so it's Herod's birthday. And notice this. When it came, it is the daughter of Herodias, okay? This is the daughter that was born to, from Philip, the first, her first husband. Her and Herodias, uh, Philip and Herodias had this daughter. Uh, Josephus actually gives us her name, it's Salome. And she, okay, so this is his, his stepdaughter. She dances before them and it pleased her. That word please uh, actually has some sexual euphemism about being actually just sexually attracted to, aroused. It pleases Herod. How wicked and sick is this? And after this dance, verse 7, he's so enamored by his stepdaughter and this lewd, provocative dance that she's got going on, so much, verse 7, that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now, you see, what he explains is when you make an oath, especially if you're a nobleman, it is, it is like considered like you can't break it. I mean, this is inviolable. He says, I'll give you half my kingdom. He doesn't have the right to give half his kingdom. He's just a little provincial ruler. He says, but whatever you want. He's kind of thinking she's going to want jewelry, right? This, she's a teenage girl. That's what Josephus writes. She's going to want jewels. I'll, I'll give her whatever jewels she wants. She, though, is being set up by her mother. You see, her mother manipulating these circumstances. She knows that her husband is drunken, he's leering, and he's lecherous, he's despicable, and he'll go for this. He'll make some sort of statement like, you do this, I'm going to offer you something. And she knows exactly what she wants. She wants John the Baptist dead. And this actually happened. If you were a a Roman ruler, you were a potentate, you could command the death of anyone you wanted, especially of a prisoner. And so they would. This is not uncommon. This is written about in history. And what they would do is they decapitate an individual. And whoever made the request, they put that head on a platter. And they would serve it up to you to show you that your word was followed through. And that is exactly what takes place. Verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. you got military figures, noblemen, wealthy folks. They've all come to celebrate your birthday. You're now on the spot. You make this grand oath. They know who John the Baptist is. Will you carry it through? And verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And verse 11, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And you can just see it. On a platter, mom's in the other room. She doesn't see her little provocative dance that she's just done. And after this execution, she brings the head of John the Baptist to her mother. Gory, grossed out. Verse 12, and his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. See, John still has his disciples, but they know that John is the proclaimer of the king. And they bury this body and then they go to Jesus and say, hey, you need to know that Herod's got you on the radar. Herod, you know why he thinks that John the Baptist is risen from the dead? Because he's got a very guilty conscience, he is haunted by John the Baptist. He knew that he did what is wrong, so he's thinking, "This is this Jesus. He's got to be this John the Baptist." Just to, by, by the way, let me just give you tell you what happens with Herod. Herod um, eventually uh, faces a major problem. Remember, his first wife, she goes back to Petra. Well, King Aretas, okay, King Aretas IV, the guy who's ro- ruling that whole empire down there with all those Arabs, ever since she comes back, he starts getting ready for war. In AD 36, he shows up with a bunch of Arabs, and he just whips Herod Antipas and his forces. He almost killed Herod the Tetrarch. He almost killed him had not the greater Roman army came in and rescued him. Eventually, Herod Antipas is, is run out. He's banished by the emperor to Gaul, which is France, and then he later dies in Spain. And so that's what happens there, but you need to know the background of this story. You need to know that it's heating up, because you see, what's taking place here is now Jesus is on Herod Antipas' radar, and he's already killed John the Baptist. And guess who's next? Guess who you'd like to see dead next? It'll be Jesus. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're Jesus' do you tone down the message? Do you stop proclaiming? Do you leave town and run away and go, "Uh uh-oh, things are... No. This is what you do. The troubles of the world necessitate the training of Christ's disciples. You train your people how to function and carry on so that when you're gone, the ministry will continue. And so verse 13 picks it up now when Jesus heard about John. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So Jesus is back up north, kind of over there by Bethsaida. He gets in a boat. Apparently, he's not so far off into the Sea of Galilee that people can see him. Perhaps the word is traveling. John the Baptist has been killed. John the Baptist, they keep speaking about this Jesus. He's been killed. And they're literally running and following him as Jesus is in this boat. He's looking for a quiet place to go and mourn the loss of John and the people. You can see them. They're on the sea, on a side of the sea, and they're on the shore and they're looking at him and they're following him. Jesus finally makes way and and lands into a cove. He sets up and notice his compassion. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. He cares for them. He loves them. He sees them distressed. Look at the cruddy rulers that they've got, like Herod Antipas, just killed John the Baptist. He cares for them. He heals them. He loves them because that is the nature of the Savior, loving, caring, concerned. And so then comes the most critical lesson he's going to pass on to them about spiritual leadership and how his ministry will continue. And it's absolutely needed because the day's coming where he's no longer going to be here. And, friends, this is so important. Do you know there's only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels? Anybody know what they are? One, the resurrection. It's in all four Gospels. The other, the one that we're counting right here, the feeding of the 5,000. God doesn't want us to miss this. We have got to get this down cold. And so we find here with all these people and they're following Jesus, Jesus comes, he's healing them. And then in verse 15, when it was evening, this is sometime after three o'clock, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They see the situation. They know very well. Three of these guys are from this area, okay? Three of Jesus' apostles, they're fishermen. This is kind of their home base area. They know that it's desolate. You have, how many people are here? You you can jump down in verse 21. He says, there are about 5,000 men, okay? So there's 5,000 men. That's not counting the women, or the children, and Jewish people generally had pretty large families. There's probably at least estimated between 10 and 15,000 people uh, that are following Jesus along the shore. They're gathering. Some have been running. They don't know what's going to happen because they've just started hearing that John's dead. They see Jesus. They're wanting to know what he's going to do, how they are going to respond. Where do they go? They go to Jesus. They're all gathering. They're running. They didn't prepare for this. It wasn't like Jesus announced. There's going to be a great seminar. I'm going to give a super message. And I want you to be here at such and such a time on this particular date. Oh, no. This is just a collective gathering of all these people. And Jesus is teaching and he's healing and he's comforting and he's explaining. And the apostles are going, you know, we came for rest. We're wiped out. We're hungry. And guess what? They probably are, too. You know, when you have people that are hungry, that leads to unhappy campers, right? Okay? And especially men. I don't know if you've noticed when you go through the Gospels, they note that there were 5,000 men that were fed. And that's, let me just, this is just all free, but there's very, two very important questions for men. Okay? My, my wife can tell you this. It's like, I ask this question on a regular basis. What are we eating? And when are we eating? Okay? Those are very important questions to men. I mean, there's a lot of important questions, but those would have to be some of the most important questions. And these guys are getting hungry. And what happens when men get hungry? Huh, we may as well just find food and get them fed because there's nothing else that's going to be done until that happens. Well, they're, they're getting hungry. The apostles are hungry. That means they know that everybody else is getting hungry. And so notice what they're doing. They're now telling Jesus what to do. It's not, notice, they never say, Lord, or ask a question, or have you considered this. Now they just flat out start telling Jesus what he should do. They're, they're telling him, verse 15, they came to him and said, this place is desolate. We know from firsthand experience there is nothing here. There's no coffee shops. There's no all-you-can-eat buffets. There's nothing out here. They're going to get hungry. They're at least four miles away from some sort of place that they're going to get food, but the villages aren't going to be able to handle a crowd of, like, 15,000 showing up when they have, like, maybe 1,000 living in or 2,000. He said the hour's late. So send these crowds away. They may go into the villages and, and buy food for themselves, and i.e., we might be able to find some food for ourselves, and we'll be able to get out of here. Jesus, listen to us. We're experts on this. Do as we say. Jesus hears them. By the way, that's never a good idea to treat God or, a, or a Messiah as your divine bellhop, running errands for you to do this, do that. Lord, I want you to do this for me now. Jesus is going to teach them a critical lesson on spiritual leadership. Jesus listens to their request, their demand, their imperative command. And he said, verse 16, he said to them, you know what? Uh, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. (laughs) What? I mean, no, no, we just told you there's nothing here. We don't have anything. You send them away. No, Jesus, they don't really need to go away. I want you, you give them something to eat. What? We, we can't. We, we don't have those kind of resources. We, we have nothing. And different gospels, when they account this, like, they, they, one of them says, you know, like, what? It would take eight months, 200 denarii, uh, just worth of money, just to feed these guys bread. We don't, we don't have that stuff. We can't do that. You see, Jesus, this is how he works. He puts you and I in situations where we are at the end of ourselves. This is beyond us. In fact, he regularly puts us in situations that forces us to realize just how weak and how little we have in terms of resources to meet the needs of whatever he's asked us to do. It's by his divine design to put you in a situation where you're like, whoa, I can't do this. That is a very good place to begin. He wants to accomplish his work in us. And so what he does is he takes us to a place of absolute dependency. We are conspicuously aware of our inadequacies. That's what he wants to bring us to. And so that's what's taking place here. He brings them to a point and says, listen, you go feed them. And they're like, oh, we, we, could, we can't do that. I mean, typical men, they'd probably be doing good if they fed five people. They, they can't feed this many. And they know it. And so... Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. And then he said, they said to him, uh, listen, verse 17, we have here only five loaves and two fish. This is all we got. We learned from other gospel accounts that that actually didn't belong to them. They had either borrowed it or taken it from a little boy whose mama had packed him a sack lunch for the day. And and uh, and there's and they notice what he says. They got five loaves and two fish. Now. These were the, this is the food of the poor people. These were like little barley biscuits, okay? And the fish, don't get the idea that he had some huge honking, you know, tuna on his back and he was just kind of walking around here. These are little sardine deals, okay? They're either smoked or pickled, right? And they got it from this boy. We don't know exactly how he got it, but they, oh, Jesus is what we all got. And so, they're like, how does this meet this kind of need? So before we ask God to do the impossible, we first must begin with that which is possible. You see, you and I, whatever meager little things we've got, we've got to give it all to him. We have to release it all to him. I know you're like, this is nothing compared to the needs that are out there. Whatever time or finances, wherever you've got, you like, Lord, okay, I, I give this to you, and, and that's what they did. He actually just asked them, what do you have? They bring it to him. And so he has these five loaves and these two fish, and he said, bring them here to me. So this is what God is doing. He, he wants to teach us to bring whatever we have, which, by the way, he gave us in the first place. Bring it to him. Lay it before him. Your, your time. I know how valuable your time is. Just give it to him. Your resources. They're not yours in the first place. You're merely a steward of them. Just give it to them. Gifts that you've been given, Lord, I I, I just give this to you. Whether it's much or little, he says, bring them here to me. And then here's another key lesson on spiritual leadership. How is God going to do his ministry? Now Jesus says, I'm going to give you an order. Verse 19, he says, order the people to sit down on the grass. Now, get the situation here. You had 5,000 men. You had ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people. Jesus tells his apostles, I want you to go and have these guys sit down. Other gospel accounts tell us that he had them in groups of about 50. And he sends them out to put them into groups. Can you imagine what this looked like? Jesus says, I want you to go and have them sit down in groups. What? Okay. And they're they're like, "Ah, okay, uh, I know everybody's hungry. Um, we're going to sit down in groups and, um, uh, can y'all just kind of get into groups of 50 and they're like, Hey, I got a question. What are we doing this for? Ah, well, Jesus said, I want you to get in groups. Um, so please sit down. Hey, we're hungry. Are you going to feed us? Um, well, I, I don't know about that. And they're thinking about the two fish and, uh, five probably, probably not. I don't know. But just when you get down in groups, like, Hey, you guys know what you're doing? Uh, not really. And, hey, have you, have you lost it? Maybe so. But please, please, just, just sit down in groups. Hey, did you, did Jesus bring food? Uh, I don't believe we saw him with any food either. Uh, but just, just get down in these groups. And, and so he sends them out on a mission that's just like, that looks crazy. But he's teaching them. He's teaching them to obey. Even when you don't have all the answers and it doesn't make sense. You listen to me. Think about how you raise your children. You teach your children, I want you to obey my voice. You listen to me. When I tell you to do something, I would like you to obey right away with the right attitude. You don't want them to, you say, I want you to come here and they're like, oh, kicking things and pouting. And they don't come to the fifteenth time and you use their middle name and you're threatening and you, I'm going to count to 10 or whatever and all these little threats. Come on, that's not parenting. Your kids know where your bottom line is. If so you have to have a, uh, close to a cardiac arrest to get them, you know, like, oh, that's where dad's line is, and then I'll come. And they'll take two steps forward, and you're like, oh, they kind of came. And No. What it, when do we obey? We want our kids to obey right away. Guess what? God wants the same with us. I want you to listen to my voice and come. I don't have to give you a discourse or an explanation for everything that I'm doing. And God doesn't. He simply says, I want you to obey. Follow me. And so they're learning to do that. This doesn't make sense in their mind. It makes them actually look bad and foolish. And yet the master said, put them in groups. Sit them down. So they're learning to do that. And so they're learning to obey his voice. And so here we are. They're going to learn this great lesson. You see, in the crisis hour of our life, When your resources are low and your responsibilities are great, it is good to remember that God has already worked out the solution. Just obey. So they got these guys in the group. They're sitting down in the grass. Everybody is looking at the apostles. What are you going to do next? And then Jesus, verse 19, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And this was common. This is what Jews did. They, When they prayed and when they thanked God for their food, they actually stood and they raised perhaps their food or they certainly raised their eyes to God in his heavenly throne and they thanked him. And he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. But the idea is that he kept breaking it. It's like these bread cakes were just just mysteriously, supernaturally, just appearing in Jesus' hands in the fish. And he just kept giving them to the disciples. And the disciples were like, wait, I have 25. We only had five cakes. And and they go and they're passing out all this food. And and they just couldn't believe it. It's just like Jesus just mysteriously. This is creative power at work. They had never, they'd seen all sorts of miracles. They'd never thought that Jesus would feed the people. He could heal people. But to feed them like this? And he keeps handing it out, and he keeps passing all this food out. And now, the liberals, in our modern era, quote unquote, they try to explain this away. It's recorded all four times. You can't deny this miracle. You know, so like one guy, Albert Schweitzer, he says, "Well, yeah, but what happened is everybody got a crumb, and everybody ate a crumb, and they were satisfied." Come on, you eat a crumb, are you satisfied? No, 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 no. Or you know, Berkeley. His idea is like, well, we can't deny this miracle. So what happened, though, is is they saw the little boy give up his food, and everybody kind of felt guilty about that. And so they all kind of pulled out of their coats. Oh, we brought lunch, too, and they all had a meal. That's not what the text says. This is a miracle to put Israel on alert, Messiahs in their midst. Elijah provided food for a widow. Elisha did the same. In fact, with 20 loaves, they fed 100 men. You can read about in 2 Kings chapter 4. This was to put Israel on alert. Messiah the King is in your midst and he will provide what you need when you need it. And so they're seeing this happen and first, first hand experience. But you know what happens? You pass out all the food. What happens when it's gone? What do you do then? Oh, hey, you took all my fish. You know what then? You see, when your hands are empty, you got to go back to the source. You go back to Jesus who has what you need. And so they were learning this very critical lesson in ministry. When your hands are empty, when your heart is empty, you've got to go back to Jesus and he'll fill it. He will give you what you need when you need it. And so you have to learn to return when you are empty. And let me just tell you in ministry, when you are frequently giving, you will regularly be empty. And I I'm just looking out to like all these hundreds of ministers. I know you know what I'm talking about. You're giving of your heart and you're giving of your resources and your time. And you find yourself completely depleted at times. Don't let that throw you off. But in that times of depletion, go to the Lord who will provide and give you what you need and he'll replenish you. But you must learn to go to him because he, it's not by might and it's not by power that God accomplishes his work. It is by his spirit, and he will provide what you need. And so when your hands are empty, when your heart is empty, go to him, and there's going to be some sort of fleshly pull that will keep you from Christ. Don't buy it. Go to him. And so these men are learning this critical lesson. And what happens, by the way, when, when it's not working, ministry's not working the way you thought it should? I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, God is sometimes glorified that we learn to wait. God's not in a hurry. He's got it all worked out. Sometimes he wants us to learn to wait on him. He's glorified and honored by that. Let me tell you something else. Sometimes God is glorified, though, that we learn something. Sometimes things aren't working out the way we want it because God intends to do a heart operation on you. There's something wrong. You've grown cold toward God. There's something bad about your theology. You're missing the sufficiency of Christ. And so he's going to address it. He does that in the waiting times. But what we're learning here. Is that The ground that is most appreciative of rain is the ground that is dry and empty. And when you have nothing in your hands and your heart, you go back to God. You go to Christ. He's our all sufficiency. He has everything that we need. You see, God is able to give all that I need to accomplish all that he has asked. And so I'd just like to ask you, what has God asked you to do? What is it before you that God has asked you to to do. I mean, think about perhaps ministry. Are you to lead a Bible study? Uh, maybe you're working with our children. You know, we have tons of needs in this church, I and mean, we have in all different areas. Is there something that God's laid on your heart? There's an opportunity available. You could meet the need. Has He asked you to do it? Do you feel inadequate? Yes, that's a very good place to be. God accomplishes His work through the inadequate, to show that He is completely sufficient maybe uh to lead with a fellowship family maybe there's a ministry that god has called you to do and when you're in ministry and you're serving others for the sake of christ he supplies but think about also your jobs your jobs are part of god's call in your life don't you find that your jobs take you to the limit i mean you got to be creative you got to be smart you got to make good decisions you got to follow through on protocol you have all these demands on you and you got to be good every day well, God will give you what you need, but we've got to learn to come to him. I mean, just think of all the things that God has asked us to do, all of which, apart from Christ, we can't do. Like, how are you doing to love your neighbor as yourself? There are some of you that can't even hardly look at yourself in the mirror. Instead of appreciating that God's divinely designed you and that you're made in his image, You despise yourself and you send yourself in these inner turmoil and it just kind of rips you down in these depressions. But furthermore, when it comes to loving your neighbor, you're like, you don't really care about your neighbor. God says, I want you to love him and you can through him. How about not returning evil for evil? Or how about being devoted to one another in brotherly love? Or remember the Great Commission? I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. How are we going to do that? How are we going to reach the Bunjara people in India? How are we going to reach our neighbors? How are we going to reach the people in our community? we got to go. Whoa, we're inadequate. Yeah, we are. But we come to the one who can multiply fish and loaves. Think about those of you who are married. Husbands, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's pretty easy, right? (laughs) No, it's not. It's very difficult sometimes, right? And yet we can through who? Through Christ. But my wife has shortcomings, you say. Uh-huh. And God's aware of that. It's going to be hard sometimes. Come to me. Are you wives? He says, I want you to love your husband's like, um and place yourself under his leadership. Respect him. <gasps> my husband, he's got all these inadequacies. Respectable. I don't think he's in there. Uh, no, no. Love him. Respect him. Lord, help me. Uh, parents, did you know that you're responsible to train your children? Uh, this is just, by the way, it's not up to the school system. Don't dump them off here at the youth group. And I hope Jeb and the gang will take care of the kids for us. No, you are responsible. And doesn't parenting bring you face to face with all your inadequacies? Sure does for me. Whoa, I am way in over my head. Lord, help me. What do you say in the word? What am I supposed to do? And by your spirit, would you make that a reality? Uh, Children. Did you know that you're called to honor your parents? In fact, a failure to honor your parents is a failure to honor God. If you can learn to honor your parents, you can actually learn to respect, obey, and honor God. But you don't have my parents. No, I don't. It's tough. I know. I had parents, too. But guess what? God says, through me, it is possible. Let me give you another one. God tells us to forgive. And there's probably people here today who are holding on to something, and it's like a battle axe. And you've been gouged by it, but you intend to gouge the person that hurts you. And God says, why don't you just leave that with me? Vengeance is mine. I'll take care of this, but you forgive. I forgave you of all things. Come to me. You you feel empty? Come on. Come on. I'm going to give you the strength to forgive, and we're going to release this individual or individuals from what they've done so you can experience my fullness and sufficiency. Think about an area like purity. Purity. God will allow us to overcome our temptations by finding our satisfaction in Christ, but we've got to come to Him. You will always lose the battle for purity physically, emotionally, intellectually if you don't find your sufficiency in Christ. Jesus says, Come to me. You're empty? Come to me. Financially giving to God's work. You're like, man, how am I going to do that? I have so much money. I can't give, or I don't have enough money. I can't give. We've got lots of reasons why we can't give and honor God of our finances. God says, trust me, just follow through. If you're single, I'm like, man, it is so hard being single. No one knows, but Jesus knows. And if he's called you to be single, maybe for this season in your life, or maybe for your life, he is going to show himself to be great in all that you need. And so that's what he's teaching here. These disciples learned to keep coming back, and they keep coming back over and over and over. And notice verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. We started off with two fish, five loaves of bread. We end up with 12 baskets full. How many uh, apostles, how many disciples did Jesus have that he's traveling with? already know? There's twelve. You guys are awesome. Very smart. There's twelve. That was not a trick question. And how many baskets do we have? Twelve. got a basket for each person. And so these apostles, when they're all done here, I want you to pick up everything. I I don't want to waste any food. Jesus was big on not wasting food, which I'm in that camp too. I want everything collected. And you carry your basket of food around. And you keep looking at that, because I want to reinforce this lesson. I can do all things. Christ who strengthens me. You and I got to learn to come to him. And so our prayer is this, Lord, please just do your work through me. Whatever that is, you might think it's inconsequential. I'm just a mom and I'm just working with these kids or I'm just a dad or I'm just a college student. Just bloom where you're planted and be faithful with what God has placed before you in this present time. But you see, the troubles of our world they necessitate the training of Christ's disciples, and that's why this text is here to train us, to teach us, no matter what hardship, what difficulty, what, uh, what a barrier is in our path, we can go to Christ, who will supply all that we need. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you for just this amazing text. You show us from the scripture that as history moved and the crosshairs were focused on Christ and his ministry, Jesus saw that the twelve were trained and that this is recorded, that your disciples, your followers, would always follow suit and never forget the lesson of the feeding of the five thousand. And so, Father, I would pray and ask that you would do an amazing work in our midst Give us a vision of living like this, of going to the sun at all times, trusting you and obeying you, even when we don't understand why we're called to do what we're called to do. And in all the times where our hands and our hearts are empty. Lord, teach us to run to you, to find you to fill us with your love, your truth, your wisdom and your grace. Thank you for Jesus, the one who died and rose again on our behalf. We paid the penalty for our sin that we might experience the fullness of life in Him. And so, Lord, help us to experience that fullness of life, life trusting You, ministering Your name for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grant. Isn't it awesome to know that uh, we have a God who can use us even when we don't have anything to offer? Isn't it amazing?